Well, good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm usually at West Lynn, and I'm the life group guy. So if you have questions about life group, you can talk to me afterwards. But we're in the fourth and final week walking through our identity statements. We have a little book in the back, the white covered book, which is version 3.0. And we're constantly making sure we use the best words to describe our identity statements. And this is uh, the fourth one that we've gone through in the past four weeks. And these are the statements that we use to identify ourselves because we often identify ourselves the wrong way or we use statements that are less than all-encompassing and we want to root ourselves in good statements. So we're again in Colossians this morning. You can turn to chapter 4. And as many of the pastors have already said, we didn't need to go to Colossians for these identity statements. These are permeated throughout all of Scripture um, because they're, they're true, because they're good statements. And we just happen to be in Colossians for this. So um, while you're turning to Colossians, I want us to think about a question. For what do you ask people to pray? What do you often ask people to pray for, for you? Um, I was pondering this quite a bit the past couple weeks. And what we often ask for prayer about can be an indicator of what we think our identity is. What often comes out of our mouth when we say, can you pray for me for whatever, can be an indicator. Sometimes we say my job, that it would be easier, that I would get that promotion, that I would get that raise, that people would see that my ideas are really, really great. My family, that they would be happy, that my kids would be successful, that they wouldn't be in trouble, that they'd be smart, that my excellence in parenting would be vindicated by my, parent, my kids. You've done that. My health, that I would be comfortable and healthy. My success, that I would excel in the field, that I would ace that test, that my ideas would prove effective. Or we pray for stuff, that I would get that house or that car or that vacation or whatever it is that just popped into your mind. I remember praying for an RX-7 when I was in high school. It's not a perfect indicator, but we may, uh, the way we ask people to pray can be indicative of what we think is most important. How I label myself in my own mind. I am my job or the greatness of my family or the healthiness of my body or the magnitude of my success or the value of my stuff. We think that way. This morning when we get into Colossians, we're going to peek at Paul asking for prayer and we will see that he has one of our identity statements. And we will know he completely believes it by the way he asks for prayer. He will ask for prayer that he can engage as a missionary. And that's, that's our identity statement that's in this little book. Um, we engage as missionaries. As individuals in this church, we are those who identify as those who engage as missionaries. Before we get started, let me define that little phrase. We, def- we engage as missionaries. We, all of us, if you include yourself as part of this church, you're included in the we, engage. We make specific actions. We do something. We engage as missionaries. We do that action toward a specific mission that is centered around proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. Good news. Jesus came proclaiming that same good news about the kingdom of God. And as an extension of what he was doing, his mission, we also engage as missionaries on the same mission. We do actions and activities toward that end. Paul was on the same mission, which is what we're going to see in Colossians 4, at the end of the letter where Paul is asking for prayer. He's going to give one request and he's going to give four instructions to those he's writing this letter to. Let's read chapter 4, verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, 
that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul starts instructing simply continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't stop praying. Don't stop communicating to the God who wants to relate to us, to the God who wants to be to us a loving father, a God that will listen, a God that cares. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. I see a person that's prone, ready to thank God when they encounter something they're thankful for. I see people prone to ask God for help when they come to something they can't traverse. Paul assumes they're already praying, just says, continue doing that. It's good work. Continue steadfastly. Don't stop doing that great thing. Friends, don't stop praying. He continues and says, as you are praying, pray for us, me and the people who are writing this letter to you, which reminds us that Paul serves on a team. That's one of our identity statements, right? Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word, a door for the word. Paul is finishing out a letter and he asks his friends to be praying for him. And his main request is that God would open the door just a crack so that Paul could proclaim the word. That's his request. What kind of opportunity, what kind of word does he want to proclaim? He says to declare the mystery of Christ. The word that he wants to declare is the mystery of Christ. Who who has never really noticed that phrase in Scripture before? Okay, See, this is what they did in Westland too. I raised my hand and everyone else went, well, I've heard about it. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't really notice it, okay? So you can raise your hand if you didn't really notice it. Um, We're used to the phrase gospel of Christ or good news or um, word of Christ, but in Greek, the mysterion to Christu, that just sounds really cool. Paul uses this three other times in Colossians. In chapter 1, he says, I became a minister of, in 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In chapter two, he says that he's struggling that you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The mystery is God's secret for most of history hidden for ages, for generations, that has finally been revealed, and that's Christ. And the work God is doing in Christ, the Son of God, God rescuing His creation. And we get to be included in the understanding and the ramifications of that mystery. Christian, we do not have a good option about how to live life. We do not have a plausible philosophy that fits alongside all the others. We do not have just another worldview for life, another self-help scheme. We hold the secret of God, the mystery. If you're, if you're sitting here with us and you don't align with this or you're not on the same page, you just don't believe this, first I just want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here. And can I, can I tell you, I'm, I'm sorry. Sometimes we and my brothers and sisters, we forget what we hold. We forget what we hold. We, we bring it up as just an option. We pitch it like something to be sold and think, maybe, maybe you don't need this, but I want to tell you about it. Our tone can come across as, it worked for me, it might not work for you. And sometimes it sounds like we place it alongside the latest parenting book or the new type of dish soap or my opinion about a sports team. You can take it or you can leave it. 
And when we do that, we present a woefully inadequate view of what is true. Can I tell you, and fellow believers, can I tell you, we have the mystery of Christ. We know the workings of the secret plan of God that has been in place since the beginning of the universe. That's crazy. The world, the entirety of the universe is broken and wrecked. Any honest observer can see that. Things are broken at a deep and profound level, and not just the structures of society, but the very frame of civilization and the confines of our own hearts and our own minds. And God in Christ is mending things and putting things back together. You and I have guilt gumming up our hearts and gumming up our souls, darkening our hearts and our minds, and God in Christ is redeeming us and forgiving us. There is shame on you and shame on me for things that you've done and things people have done to us. We feel dirty and rejected. God in Christ is cleansing us and making us whole again, washing us from even the results of what other people have done to us. This world is unreconciled. We don't get along. I don't know if you know that. We are at each other's throats. We identify by our polarization. Man, woman, black, white, rich, poor, spiritual, secular, right, left, etc., etc., etc. And it is not working. No one has ultimate, ultimate ideas about how to bring us together, but God in Christ is reconciling us. There's evil in this world. I don't know if you know that either. And in your most vulnerable and honest, you know that you're not just an observer who can see it. You're a contributor to it. God in Christ is getting rid of evil and reconciling his enemies to himself. This world is confused and searching for answers and constantly giving bad options and just running with them anyway. God in Christ is revealing himself to the world and to others. Letting, him, letting us see who, what his character is. Letting us see who he is. He's showing us how we can live. This is the mystery of Christ. God, in Christ, showed up. He didn't have to show up. God stepped in. God decided to forgive. God decided to help in the person of Christ. This is a mystery. And it is the mystery that we hold. We get to hold it. And it is a mystery that Paul knew. And he continues... The mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He writes this letter from prison. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul says this is the mystery. This mystery is why I'm sitting in this cell. Literally, the, the words there are I am bound. You can picture the manacles and the chains holding him to the floor. Perhaps he is looking at them while he's dictating this very letter. This is why I'm bound. I'm bound because of the mystery. Because I declared the mystery of Christ. And he says, back to my prayer request, pray that God would open a door for the word, for the mystery of Christ, that I would be able to make it clear and obvious that I could in a helpful way proclaim the mystery because I ought to speak it. That's the English word there. I ought to speak it. Literally, I am bound to speak it. Perhaps Paul is a little more willing to tell a joke in that type of situation than we are. A little tongue in cheek. He says, I am bound because of the, the mystery and I am bound to proclaim this mystery. I'm bound either way. I'm either in chains or I am bound to proclaim it and I'm back in chains. 
He says, even while I sit in this prison, when you are praying, thanking God for what he is doing, please pray for me that I would have an opportunity. Even in this dingy cell, there would be some chance to proclaim the mystery, some crack in the door to tell someone about Christ, to engage someone. He doesn't ask for prayer for health, for freedom, that the guards would drop dead, that there'd be uh, a mechanical failure of the chains and the gate for a just verdict, for a better lawyer, all things I would pray for. He asked that a door would open a crack so that he'd be able to proclaim the mystery because his identity is one that I am one of the ones who engage as a, miss- a missionary. He is one of the ones that proclaims the, mis- the mystery. Well, yeah, you say, but that guy's Paul. That's his job. He's crazy. Identity is not determined by your vocation. It's determined by ultimate truth. And that is why Paul continues by exhorting his readers and us to walk in the same type of way. He continues with instruction. Do life this way. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Who are the outsiders? They're the ones that don't know the mystery of Christ. They're your co-worker, your neighbor, the person in the cubicle next to you, the student that sits at the table with you, your mom, your dad, possibly, the fellow parents on the baseball team, the gal you work out with, the buddy you golf with. Outsiders. Walk in wisdom toward them. Wisdom is understanding how the world is put together with God at the top and responding and acting appropriately with that understanding of the world. As Proverbs reminds us, understanding God in his proper place is the beginning of wisdom. And this is how the wise person acts, informing their actions and the steps of their life with proper understanding of the universe and how God put it together, how things ought to be done. To engage as a missionary is to walk in wisdom. Maybe you start by asking these type of questions. Does the way I talk with my coworker display the fact that I know the mystery of God? Do I reflect the character of God in my actions? Work, home, school, play? Am I making decisions about life as just part of the rat race with everybody else? Or as someone who knows how the universe is put together? As someone who knows what God is doing. Just sit with those thoughts for a little bit. Do I walk in wisdom toward those who do not know the mystery? That may sting a little. Because it's too easy to live life as though you know the mystery in this room. But as soon as you go out, you just do the normal nine to five like everybody else. You live a life that would never give a suspicion that you know the secret of the universe. You forget and then act accordingly. I forget, then act accordingly. Friends, you know the mystery. You know what God is doing in the world. There's no reason to tuck that away. There's no reason to hide that. Consider how you walk. Walk in wisdom toward those who do not know the mystery. Pray and ask God to give you wisdom needed to walk with people you know that are on the outside. Pray for those friends that God would show them the mystery. And this is why we're in life groups. This is why we're in community, because we can ask for help. Just a few examples from my own life. Hey, I'm, I'm being pressured to charge a certain customer at work more than anybody else just because they, they trust us and they would never check on us. How do I walk in wisdom? How do I do this the right way? Can you help me bolster my confidence to walk in wisdom? 
It's a great example. Another friend, hey, I've been hanging out with coworkers for coffee and now they're asking me what I think about hell or about sex or about sin. Can you help me understand what the Bible says about this so I can wisely respond with wisdom about how the world is put together? Or another, hey, I'm going on a business trip and I know that when we get there, a lot of the guys, are, they're just going to go get drunk and they're going to go to strip clubs. How do I decline that invitation and respond in wisdom and not just sound like a prude, but as someone that wants to be completely faithful to his wife because I know there's delight there. There's goodness there because that's the way it's supposed to be. How do I respond wisely? Or the person that says, I keep, I keep arguing with buddies at work about current events and news and politics, and I feel like I'm just regurgitating the, my favorite news channel. Can you help me drill down into principles, into wisdom, into how God put the world together so I can speak wisely and talk with wisdom about these things to these people? The one who walks in wisdom does not have to have different hats, different versions of themselves. I don't need to be buddy Eric over here and professional Eric at work and super spiritual pastor Eric on Sunday and citizen Eric when I'm out in the community. I can be walking in wisdom Eric all the time. Refreshingly, you can live that way too. You don't have to change hats all the time. Does it take practice? Yes. Does all wisdom come in a moment? No, there's going to be lots of questions. But we belong to the God of all wisdom, and he desires to give wisdom. Proverbs 2 says, the Lord, of all, the Lord gives wisdom. And James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who wants to generously give. Paul continues instructing. Number three, make the best use of the time. There's only a little bit of time left, right? If you're 80, you're going, there's only a little bit of time left. If you're 50, there's only a little bit of time left. If you're 15, man, there's only a little bit of time left. Make the best use. This word is redeem, redeem it, buy it up, capitalize on it, use it to make something happen. I think about this all the time. Who has ever said, I'm just so busy right now? Seriously, guys, please. Who has realized they just keep saying this over and over and over again? You're always busy. Does it ever make you think, am I, if I'm going to be busy, am I making the best use of the time? Am I using appropriately this scarce and limited resource? If I'm so stinking busy, am I doing good things with the time? The best things. On top of that, we live in a world that is designed to pull your attention and distract you. To keep you from thinking about the most, occup- the most important things. I recently realized that I was getting super frustrated with how much my face was pointing towards this thing. I downloaded an app that tracked my time and it analyzed me for a little while. And after a while, it told me, here's how many hours a day you spend on your phone. Over two hours a day. And that was after I decided to cut down. I was better at that point. And that doesn't include my work phone. Two hours a day, the average adult spends three and a half hours. The average teenager spends five hours. They just know how to use it better than we do. That doesn't include TV or movies or the amount of time you spend watching the news. And this is not a let's beat up on technology, but technology gives us a chance to look at a slice of our lives where it becomes painfully obvious that we may not be using, making the best use of the time. If I'm so stinking busy all the time, it better be worth it. I better be doing something awesome, right? 
Our little book defines engagement as there's mission on the calendar, there's margin for people, weekly coffee or food with people, people that are disconnected from God, from the mystery. And maybe you say, and I know I've said, ah, but I'm too busy for that. I don't have time for that. I was on my phone two hours a day. How can you make margin? How can you make the best use of your time? When, I, when I've been saying I don't have time or margin to befriend or be hospitable, I've realized that I need to change my schedule. I need to make time for the most important things, the less important things. They can fall off if they don't make the cut. And can I step on some idols just for a moment? Well, let's, let's do that. Might as well. I can't make the best use of my time if I know how every basketball, football, baseball, soccer team is doing. I can't. That takes too much time. Best use of my time means I will never have the golf handicap that I want. That's frustrating. Best use of my time means I don't, I don't need to have a favorite TV show and I don't need to watch all of the stuff that's most popular right now. Every movie. Make the best use of the time. There's three ways this happens at New Life Church. The first and most important is at the individual level, what we're talking about, what I'm talking about right now. In individuals engaging as missionaries, living with, life, with eyes open, looking for opportunities, praying that God would open doors. The second is individuals coming together to love a particular group with action or service. We've seen people help a school or serve a neighbor. We've seen people walking through Christianity Explored or Alpha with outsiders as a means to make the best use of time. And the third level, corporately, as a church, we do mission together, making the best use of time. That's why we open the doors across the street from the high school in Westland for coffee cart. That's why we occupy the fellowship hall in Westland for Celebrate Recovery. We occupy this fellowship hall with Awana. And in the future, uh, foster parents night out so we can give child care to those that are doing foster care. We use the houses as recovery houses so we can begin to proclaim the mystery of Christ to people that need help. At three levels, we want to make the best use of our time. If we're going to be busy, let's do something that proclaims the reality of the universe, that proclaims the mystery of Christ. Paul continues, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul says, walk well, redeem your time, speak well. Speak, always be gracious. I think there are two things going on here. Let your mouth often be speaking of grace, what God did that he didn't have to do, grace. And also let it be graceful, charming, winsome, helpful. We're not selling something, we're proclaiming something. And that truth we are to proclaim should be ready to pop off of our tongue and the method with which we speak it should be full of grace. Seasoned with salt. Language seasoned appropriately so that it's flavorful and packs a punch. I love grilling a proper steak. My favorite is a New York strip with a huge fat cap on the side. And you've grilled the fat cap first so that the fat renders and it's like butter it's, it's wonderful. How do you prepare a great steak? Step one, you buy a great steak. <laughs> Step two, you salt the great steak. So the flavors of the great steak are pronounced and presented to the palate in an appealing way. Step three, don't overcook the steak. 
If you don't appropriately salt a steak, you don't just lose salt. You lose the steak. You lose a bit of the steak. The salt is there to point out how fantastic the steak is, the flavors of the meat. That's why you salt it. If I speak grace without grace, I lose some grace. It, is, it does not do to speak a true word with a hard heart. When you do that, you don't engage as a missionary. You're just a curmudgeon. Not wise, not like someone who knows the mystery of Christ. Hey, dummy, Christ is a redeemer, so uh, he saves even an idiot like you. Figure it out. <laughs> not helpful, right? Hey, stupid world, as I stand on the curb. You're just a bunch of stinking sinners and you're all going to hell. Christ can save you. That's not helpful or wise or anything. Just stop talking for a while. But those who walk in wisdom, making good use of time, stand in front of their neighbor as someone who has taken the time to love them and be kind to them and can say, friend, I care about you. I know something about God that I want you to know. He has come to rescue me from my path and the path of this broken world. He is fixing the world. He's doing incredible things in and through Christ. I care about you and I want you to know what Christ is doing. I want you to know about Jesus. I want you to be with him like I am with him. Your speech can be seasoned with salt. Paul continues, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How you ought to answer. That's the same word Paul used for himself, being bound. How I ought to speak or am bound to speak. I must, we are bound with Paul to speak the mystery. Every person has a different story. Every relationship has a different focus. Every person has a different hurt. Your coworker does not struggle with the same thing as your neighbor and the same thing as the person that made your coffee on Tuesday. But what God is doing in Christ is so big, there is something upon which you can focus that is good news for that person. And there's a way you are bound to proclaim the mystery of Christ. When I have a friend sit across the table who says my parents are dying and it has me thinking about how scary death is. I can talk about the God who brings the death of death and say, no, life should not end this way. Death is not a normal part of life. It is here because of the curse and God is, re is remedying the curse. Maybe on a drive to a job with the coworker who's constantly philosophical and can't help but ask, why are we here? You can talk about the God who reveals himself and shows his plan and the mystery. To every socially aware coworker or the person next to me at the coffee shop who feels like screaming at the injustice in the world but feels paralyzed by the scope, I can talk about the God of justice and the God of righteousness. When someone tells me they've been abused, I can sit with them and I can cry with them, and I can tell them about a God who cleanses us from the shame of even what other people have done to us. I can sit with my neighbor who feels they have failed their father because of the messages their father has said to them for years, and I can talk to the coworker who feels like they failed their kids, and I can talk about the God who is a better father, and I can talk about the God who redeems and gives us his righteousness. 
When a coworker who grew up in the same small town as me tells me he was pulled over 15 times before he was 17, not because he was running red lights and speeding and being reckless, but because his skin is darker than mine, I can cringe and express my frustration and then my hope that God is in the process of reconciling people even those opposed to each other. And I get to and want to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. I can talk to my friend who's frustrated with politics and how we govern ourselves and who feels like throwing the TV out the window. And I can say, yes, it is failing. It doesn't work. And I am frustrated and I do want better solutions. But I don't put my ultimate hope there. God is king of the universe. God is king who will make all right and good one day. We can work for good now in its slow process, but I will wait for a king who will never fail me or disappoint me in the way he governs. Or there's the customer at a a moment of odd vulnerability who says they know they deserve punishment because they had an abortion. Or the friend who tells me, I force someone to have an abortion. You can talk about the God who dies for us and takes our guilt. And for the one who is tormented and constantly being told lies by Satan or demons, you can talk about the God who defeats Satan and demons. And with every neighbor who says it's too hard to put down this bottle, the alcohol is too wrapped around my mind. It's too hard to put down the pills. It's too hard to not drive to that spot where I know that guy will give me drugs. It's too hard to not open my phone and go to that same porn site over and over and over again. You can tell them of the God who brings freedom from sin and renews our minds. And my friends, this is all the same God. God is doing all of this work through Christ. This is the mystery that has been held for ages that God has not just created us and abandoned us and left us to our own devices. God has interjected himself into our world and he is doing work. He is cleansing and forgiving, reconciling and redeeming, satisfying and saving, rescuing and renewing, defeating and uplifting. He is the one who creates and the one who is present The one who died and the one who defeated death, he is good and gracious and he is a king. And he includes us, his enemies, and he makes us friends. And Christ was on a mission and he is not done. The mystery of Christ and his work is too great to stop 2,000 years ago. And it will never stop until all is made right. Every injustice crushed, every bend made straight. He will mend this place. He can mend you and he can rescue your friends and your family and your co-workers and your neighbor and every person you think is just too far gone. This is the mystery we're talking about. With Christ, no one is too far gone. His work is too good. No one is not worth engaging. And you, my friends, are bound to proclaim it because you have the mystery You hold the mystery. You know the truth. You know what Christ is doing in this world and what he has done. You know that he died for the sins of the world and that death could not hold him. You are bound because you have the mystery. You are bound because you have the truth. And because you know this incredible and ultimate truth, it is part of your identity, part of who you are. 
My friends, you get to proclaim the God who cleanses, forgives, reconciles, dies, rises, reveals, defeats, brings freedom, and is king. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us eyes to see all of this clearly? Give us hearts that pump faster when we think about this truth. Let the mystery of Christ permeate all the corners of our mind. Give us wisdom and courage to walk toward outsiders. Holy Spirit, give us a keen perspective into our use of time and help us cut the unneeded so we can make the best use of the short time. Give us hands that help us let go of what is not important so we can grasp more tightly what we are happily bound to. Give us words, give us grace, give us salt. We want to tell good news in a way that sounds good. Give us soft hearts for people. Show us how we can engage and do action. Thank you for including us in your mission. Thank you for changing our identity. Amen.